The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. This is Squawk Box. Your headlines this hour. Saudi Aramco finally launches its highly anticipated IPO with a domestic listing set for December, but offers little detail about what may become the world's biggest IPO. The percentage of investors, uh, international ones versus the uh, domestic ones, is still yet to be determined after we do the uh, uh, roadshow, the book building. And after that, the, uh, uh, the price range and fixing the price. A surprisingly strong jobs report helps the S&P 500 and the Nasdaq notch fresh record highs, while stocks across Asia extend the rally on trade deal hopes. Hong Kong protests grow more violent, leaving two people in a critical condition, whilst Chinese state media calls for a harder line from authorities after 22 weeks of demonstrations. And it looks like Germany making a big push to go electric. The Chancellor Angela Merkel promising to put in place one million car charge points by 2030. Whilst automaker VW looks set to roll out a key electric model at a newly converted plant. Plus fans across South Africa celebrate as the Springboks claim a big victory over England at the Rugby World Cup in Japan. So, very good morning to you. Very good morning, Steve. Lovely to see just you. Just the uh, pair of us. What was us that last morning? read you just did before with the head? Like, before you I can't remember it. Rug- it's gone. Rugby. Erased. Rugby. Gone. Rugby. Gone. Some, something about Rugby. England losing a game on Saturday. Oh, I missed the game. Sorry. Oh. Yeah, didn't yeah. see it. Rough. Anyway, um, Lewis Hamilton won the Formula One, though. Did you see that? <laughs> yeah, Amazing. Well, nice to see an Englishman doing well. And there was a good game of Tiddlywinks as well, I understand. Uh, let's talk about Saudi uh, Aramco then. Saudi Arabia has officially launched the long awaited IPO of state owned oil giant Saudi Aramco following a number of delays. A domestic listing is set for December with key details of the final offer price and percentage of shares to be sold due to be announced at the end of the book building period. Well, this is something uh, that we've been waiting some time to see some detail on, and I think we're going to have to wait a little bit longer here. At least we now have uh, the starting gun having been fired, and we do have a a good sense that this is going to be focused primarily on the domestic Saudi Arabian market. A very senior energy executive um, talking off the record to me recently said, I don't know why Saudi Aramco is doing this. I don't know why they want the public scrutiny of their books. I don't know why they want to go for an international listing. I don't know why they want shareholders when they already have a shareholder who basically controls the whole company as it is, will continue to have predominant control over the company going forward. The irritations of having a company going public and potential litigation issues globally and potential regulatory issues globally, adding a whole world of pain for this company and potentially for the country. Why do they want this IPO? Is it purely a money-raising exercise? 
Uh, I think it's a great question and it remains to be seen given that we haven't had from the principals an answer that would cover off that issue. My, my other question would be uh, <clears throat> why domestically focused at this point? Why not the, I mean I wonder if there are now executives at the NYSE, at the LSE and other markets who are wondering what their opportunity will be to get a stake of this at some later date because Obviously, at this point, this has been announced as a Tadawal arrangement and not something more international. So we'll have to wait and watch on that particular story. The, the longer term optics on this are interesting. But again, we're in the realm of speculation. Is this about the fact that Saudi Arabia has a plan for its energy transition away from its reliance on oil? We know that to be true from the conversations we've had with the government over the years. But does the fact that this is coming to market now hasten the progress of that transition phase? What does it mean for nuclear in Saudi Arabia? What does it mean for solar in Saudi Arabia? Lots and lots of questions. Um, yeah, and um, not a lot of answers. And, and what does it mean for society? Let us be honest about it. This is a country that has societal issues. It has demographic issues. It is in a race against time to get as much value as possible out of an extraordinary asset, an extraordinary, one of the biggest oil assets, but the biggest oil asset on the planet. And it's a question of when they can extract that. Look what's our other headline this morning. Remember that headline we had literally about three minutes ago? Mm. That headline was, uh, Germany goes electric. One million car charging points. VW bringing out uh, a new electric model as well. So it's a race against time, not just for Saudi Arabia, but for the whole hydrocarbon extractive industries to try and get full value from their asset before. Let's be honest about it. Mark Carney made his speech, and it was at least three years ago, and I forget the exact time, um, and basically talking about unextractable unburnable and uninvestable assets. And we've seen investor after investor, CSR after CSR, ESG after ESG saying, we don't want you or we don't feel comfortable investing in hydrocarbons. Now that may just be a European and a US thing at the moment, but actually potentially it has global appeal. So there are potential problems for anyone who concentrates purely on extractive of getting this asset to market in time to realize full value. That is the problem why so many IOCs. And let us point out that the IOCs trade at a discount in many cases, certainly in Europe, to what they believe the sum of their parts valuation is, what they believe that their their value is compared with the rest of the market. For instance, it's not uncommon to find a European successful cash flow positive IOC with a 6% dividend yield. That is, that is very, very often the case as well. Saudi Ramco, my understanding, will be offering a lot smaller dividend yield as well as well. So if you've got a Ramco on the market, you are now up against those IOCs and you have to look damn attractive to all those investors who I just mentioned have all those ESG, CSR, uh, uninvestable issues, which um, some investors, in fact, growing investors are clamoring for. So there are many, many challenges with this. Um, Let's pick up uh, just with the headline and just remind our audience, if you've just tuned in, the news over the weekend, uh, Saudi Aramco uh, is poised to IPO on the Tadawal, answering a question posed by CNBC at a press conference. Saudi Aramco's chairman responded to security concerns. It is very safe. And if you want to have a full proof to that, you see the oil prices. Oil prices went up uh, the first two days by about 20%. Then it came down by 10%. And all the future traders saw this as a non-event. This is 
we have one eighth of the uh, oil production in the world, and the oil uh, uh, traders they saw this as an event and that means it is really safe. That's what the money is saying. So the safety, I think, the whole wide world, it's not only Saudi Arabia, will be looking after the safety of this region and uh, this company. US markets, meanwhile, are going gangbusters as well. Energy was part of that rally last week as well. Energy stocks having a very strong time of it, up 2.5% in the sector on Friday, where nine out of 11 sectors moved in positive territory. The data is patchy, but it is not showing recession flashing red indicators, or so says the narrative at the moment as well. So despite the fact that in the first and second quarter, we have seen the contraction of earnings as well, the market says there is enough juice for us at the moment to carry on with this rally to carry on extending these valuations as well. Is that dangerous territory? Well, that remains to be seen. But the fact of the matter is, the likes of the S&P in session and pretty much at the close, uh, trading and closing at record levels, having, I think it's the second best year in the decade now. Uh, Nasdaq was up 1.13% as well. So for the week, the US market's having a very strong time. Uh, The S&P had its best week in eight as well. And of course, despite the fact that we had a rate cut from the Federal Reserve uh, earlier in the week, the mantra seems to be now, let's wait and see. No debt rate cut on the cards as well. Let's wait and see how things pan out. But I can tell you coming up this week, including today, Senior Loan Officers Opinion Survey. Why should you care about the sluice? What a great acronym. The sluice. You should care about it because it shows what the strength of credit supply, strength of credit demand, quality of that credit is as well. So that's a really interesting survey. Tomorrow, international trade. Let's see what that looks like for the US as well. Uh, PMIs and SMIs from the service sector. We know manufacturing still in contraction, but a better figure than many had feared last week as well. We've got the JOLT survey out tomorrow as well. And then on Friday, uh, of note, Michigan sentiment as well. Let's take a look at the Asian indices. The reads from Jeff's headline said continues the rally. And so it does, especially on the Kospi up 1.4%. The Hang Seng, the Hong Kong market, ignoring the politics in the session, 1.3% higher. Shenzhen up six tenths of 1%. Should we have a look at the opening calls? Yeah, let's do this. Opening calls are coming anyway, but we'll get back to that in a very short while, Jeffrey. Yeah, it's a remarkable uh, story for the markets this morning. So many, so, many, so many pieces of information over the weekend and late Friday that would indicate that there is some potential here for these markets. I hear we have the opening calls. A little bit higher, do we? Should we have a look at them? <laughs> I'm not going to move again. They blew it. It's over we my just, shoulder. We just it. take the wall. Uh, Footsie, 32 yeah. points. <laughs> Cetralax up 66. Uh, CAC up 20. It came as such a surprise to them that I was going to opening calls after the Asian markets. I, I haven't really done that for... Last week or so. Look, we'll have it. We'll have it good by Friday. You can bet on that. <laughs> Coming up on the program, then Ryanair pushes back delivery expectations of the troubled Boeing 737 Max, saying the risk of further delay is rising. We're going to find out how that could affect the company's bottom line. It'll be a first-on interview with CEO Michael O'Leary very shortly. Oh, and if you just can't get enough of what is turning out to be a great Monday edition of Scorebox, uh, be sure to tune in to our very own podcast. Uh, head to cnbc.com. It's like listening to the old two Ronnie sketches. You know, you can get it on cnbc.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts to have a listen and download today's episode. And for our listeners, stick around for more because there'll be more from him and more from me. A CNBC signature event. 
East Tech West. CNBC's exclusive invitation-only retreat returns to Nanshao, Guangzhou, China in 2019. We explore all things tech from artificial intelligence to 5G. Join the world's most prolific investors, inventors and entrepreneurs as they share their stories and celebrate innovation. Visit EastTechWest.com for an application to attend. Oh, there's so much to look at in these uh, Siemens Health and Ears numbers as well. Comparable revenues up 5.8% uh, versus guidance of 4.5%. So a beat there. Operating profit on an adjusted basis up 9%. But is there a squeeze on the margin? 17.3% as opposed to guidance of 17.5%. Look, there's so much to look at. Why don't we do it with the CEO? Bount Montag joins us, uh, the Siemens Health and Ears CEO, calling in from Munich. Good morning to you, Bount, as well. Very nice to speak to you. Look, uh, there are brokers out there, and you'll be aware of concerns from the likes of JP Morgan, who have concerns about your turnaround uh, diagnostics, and are seeing that the pace of growth in global imaging is unsustainable. Are these numbers a rebuttal of that, or actually are the margins actually underlining what JP Morgan's concerns are? Good morning, sir. Good morning. Yeah, lots of questions. So, um, I mean, first of all, I mean, we are extremely happy uh, with um, the achievement. Um, of the team in the last year with this uh, very, very strong growth, very strong finish. And I think it underlines that we are right on track um, with our strategy. Uh, we see lots of potential for the future, yeah, for the upgrading phase of our company and are very confident that we will um, grow by more for, um, than 5% in the upcoming years uh, with an impact on, on bottom line of around 10% EPS growth. We are very positive that imaging and advanced therapies will grow into new fields, and we have a clear plan forward um, in diagnostics to get to the levels um, we, we, we want to. Now, look, there is one of these other broker battles going on, looking at areas such as Atelica lab diagnostic systems as well. There are doubts that you can achieve your lofty targets of 7,000 installations by the end of 2020. Are you on target with that, or does that look a bit of a stretch? So Atelica is definitely the right product. It is what the market needs. It is... Um, um, bringing productivity, space, and staff shortage challenges um, of our customers into, to a solution. Um, we are very, very confident um, to get to margins in the mid-teens in this business. It will take a bit longer um, than we originally uh, planned, or we have been a little bit um, over-optimistic. Um, but um, it is a very attractive market for us. We have the right product. We have the right uh, measures in place. We have a super high competitive win rate. Um, so I'm very confident about this business. Yeah, Bernd, uh, good morning. Just to pick up on the uh, Telica machines, uh, one of the issues does seem to be the complexity and also the length of time that installation takes. Um, is there an execution issue here that is just going to mean that you have to be a bit more patient on the delivery ultimately for shareholders on this particular diagnostic device? Um, I think this is a way one can put it. Yeah, it is, as, uh, it is the right machine. It is answering um, the pressing needs of our customers. It, it takes 
a bit longer to um, to install to get to the very important um, reagent revenue streams, um, which which then um, show up in the P and L. Um, but we have our arms around it. We have clear measures in place to uh, to streamline our processes, and um, I'm very confident. Uh, Bernd, we're going to say goodbye. Thank you very much indeed for joining us this morning and updating us on the business, and best of luck with the coming quarter. Bernd Montag, the CEO of Siemens Health and Ears, on the line there from Munich. Um, let's have a quick look at uh, what we've got out of Ryanair this morning, the uh, group delivering earnings. The um, uh, company says, uh, well, just make this clear, the group sees no disruption. This is the CFO, no disruption from the 737 uh, pickle fork issue. Interesting. Um, the uh, pickle fork issue is the crack that was identified, um, as you'll know. Uh, I think it was first identified by Qantas, but um, we'll, we'll keep an eye on that one. Um, in terms of uh, the um, outlook on the, um, uh, the rest of the earnings, let's get straight out to Michael O'Leary, the CEO who joins us now from the LSE in London. Uh, Michael, good morning. Let me not get hung up on some of the safety and maintenance issues for a moment. Just give us the headlines on the numbers. A reasonably strong half year. Profits flat, 1.15 billion after tax, uh, mainly due to fair, lower fares. We cut fares 5% in the half year, delivered traffic up 11%. And ancillary spend per passenger, the optional extras that people, the services people like buying are up 16% per passenger. So reasonably good on the revenue side. And on the cost side, cost ex-fuel up just 2%, good control, despite the fact that we've had to delay the delivery of the MAX aircraft, which was where we were originally uh, hoping to get a lot of our cost savings from this year. Yeah, just on that, uh, and let me just bring the, the more recent crack issue into this. Sure. Um, in terms of what the impact is going to be on a number of, uh, of years, uh, do you have a good read yet on assessing the costs and whether you're able to get compensation from Boeing? I mean, those obviously, that's a dialogue that's ongoing with, uh, with Boeing, Jeff. I mean, I, the challenge for us and Boeing is to determine when is this aircraft going to go back into service? I mean, Boeing keep missing their delivery dates. So we're now not expecting the first of our MAX aircraft until March or April of next year. Uh, which means we're getting very tight for summer of 2020. We'll have less capacity next year, probably a stronger yield performance as a result. But until the aircraft is back flying, we really can't finalise what our costs have been as a result of these delays. So it's a, it's, a, it's a dialogue that continues with Boeing. But I think we in Ryanair, who are the largest 737 customer in Europe, and Boeing are focused and working hard to get this uh, aircraft back flying in North America probably first, hopefully this side of Christmas, more likely in January or February, and then uh, flying in Ryanair by March, April. Well, I don't want to break over old ground, but look, you, your comments on, and battle. You do it so well. All right, let's do this then. OK, 2017, we're now in an era where the computer does most of the flying. They're skilled professionals, but are they hard worked? No. So basically, you were criticised for saying it's an easy job. And, and you're right, the computer does do most of the flying. But do you think that's where the problem is, that actually this is where this is all emanated from? And I'm talking about the industry, Mike. I'm not talking about Ryanair. Do you think we need to step back and actually have pilots who can handle more situations now and have less computer technology? I don't think so. You know, look, 
There's been two tragic uh, accidents with, with the 737, with the MAX. Uh, the MCAS software system wasn't well explained by Boeing, I think, to pilots generally who were flying the aircraft. But it has been flying successfully in North America for over 12 months without any incident. I think the MCAS system is now well known by pilots. We put most of our senior pilots... We have a, we're the only airline with a MAX simulator here in Europe. We put most of our senior pilots, the training pilots through it. They love the aircraft. They love the MCAS system once everybody understands what it does. Uh, and I think that's one of the issues on the return to service is not everybody's confident the aircraft is perfectly safe. It's a great aircraft. Um, but the, the training on the way back into service, whether it's computer based or sim based, pilots will need to be more aware of what the MCAS actually does. It's another aid to flying. But flying continues to be extraordinarily safe. The safety record of the industry over the last number of years, despite the two uh, tragedies that befell Ethiopian and, uh, and Lion Air, it has never been safer to fly, uh, as witnessed by the thousands, uh, tens of thousands of flights that take off on a daily basis. But the good thing about this industry is it shares information about when there are problems. True. It's not like, say, the medical industry that has been accused of hushing stuff up historically. This is an industry that shares. Do you think one thing that we've learned from this is it's that the manufacturers are too close to the regulators, Michael? I'm not sure that I don't think that's fair. I mean, I think there has been an identifiable issue with the software system here. Uh, lessons have been learned, I presume, both by the regulators and by the manufacturers. I think maybe the regulators need to be a little bit tougher on the manufacturers. The manufacturers have a duty, uh, I think, when they produce new products or new software to educate the, pilot, the airlines and the pilots as to what the, the existence of that software, what it does. But this is still a great aircraft. This is an aircraft that has 4% more seats, 16% lower fuel consumption. You know, it is going to be the game changer for us for the next 10 years. So we can't wait to see it back in the air, flying safely and flying millions of people on an annual basis. Michael, there are some adjustments on uh, passenger numbers expected to fly here. Um, just rounded down a little bit. Is that Brexit related? And can I ask you, do you think that the election is going to clear the air and give us a pathway towards a proper, proper resolution of this for business? Well, firstly, Jet, we slightly raised the, the, the annual traffic this year from 152 to 153 million this morning. We have cut back next year, this winter and next year's growth expectations simply because of the delays in the MAX aircraft. By the end of, by December this year, we were supposed to have taken 40 aircraft deliveries. We'll have received none. So we're slowing down our growth rate next summer. We'll expect to carry about 157 million passengers instead of growing to 163 million. In the short term, that's probably good for shareholders. Fares will be a little bit higher, I think, into next summer. Um, but ultimately, we want to take delivery of these aircraft. There will be a large backlog of aircraft that need to be taken by Ryanair, certainly here in Europe in the winter of 2020 into the summer of uh, 2021. Uh, and the airline industry, the, the industry in Europe continues to consolidate towards four or five large carriers. And we've seen that uh, inexorable trend with the failure of Thomas Cook, Aigle Azur, uh, Azul, the availability, widespread availability of pilots and cabin crew now. I think now is a better time for us to grow uh, as Norwegian continues to contract. Yeah, but I looked, um, just to come back to this, I, I looked at um, your announcement back in July and you said, we're cautious on pricing into the winter. Brexit and the risk of a hard Brexit has materially increased with the new government. I'm aware that you didn't answer the question that I asked, Michael, which was about Brexit and the election and whether there is a an opportunity for a pathway here to a resolution on this issue for you? Uh, like everybody else, I mean, it all depends on the outcome of the election. You know, I worry, I, I mean, I worry, I think the most likely outcome of this election will be another hung parliament, more indecision and fudge. Um, you know, like most businesses, we want certainty. 
Um, but Brexit continues to deliver us uncertainty. I think the good news, certainly from an airline point of view, is even in the a hard Brexit, which is now increasingly unlikely, the, U- the UK and the Europeans have agreed on 12-month transition per- periods. So at least there won't be an immediate over-the-cliff disruption to air travel. But the UK, if it leaves in our no-deal situation, will still have to negotiate a trade agreement with uh, the U- with Europe. Uh, which is where I think the Brexiteers continue to, you know, mislead the public. You know, this is not getting Brexit done. Brexit won't be done until a trade deal is done. And the UK is years away from negotiating a trade deal with Europe. So we hope that there will be a resolution. We hope that there will be a sensible uh, negotiated outcome. But I very much doubt that this election will lead to a, a large majority for either party or some certainty, sadly. Michael, I've seen them at Ryanair. I've seen them at Gatwick. I've seen them all over since Brexit's conundrum quagmire began, call it what you like. It's a red herring. They're flocking onto the planes. The issue is the, the structure of the industry, isn't it? I don't think so. I mean, the structure of the industry is now quite solid. Uh, that was Steve. You know, we're seeing the emergence of four or five large airlines across Europe. Ryanair is by far and away the largest in passenger number terms. You've seen in our numbers this morning, we've delivered 11% traffic growth off what is already the largest airline, international airline in the world. But on the back of 5% lower airfares, I mean, we are continually cutting costs. Ryanair's continually passing on those lower fares in the form of uh, those lower fares. And that's what's stimulating our growth. And it's what's accelerating the demise of airlines like Thomas Cook, Eglazur and the Norwegian, who I think won't be far behind them. Uh, Just very quickly, Norwegian, you think they're going bust? Yeah, look, uh, the airline business is hard enough, Steve, without starting off at six and a half billion of uh, net debt. And they're now resorted to selling the aircraft to to raise 50 million bucks, which wouldn't pay the fuel bill for a week. Look, Norwegian is doomed. The business model doesn't work uh, and they're saddled now with enormous debts. It's only a matter of time before it goes bust. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.